For my first discussion with a leading scholar, I have come to Keble College, Oxford, to meet the warden, Professor Averill Cameron. Professor Cameron is an expert on religion in the late Roman and Byzantine empires. Well, many students will not have studied this period before. When students were perhaps familiar with uh, later periods, uh, perhaps as late as the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, uh, come back to studying the uh, era from the uh, 3rd to the 7th centuries, what uh, leaps of understanding and imagination do you think it's important that they begin to start with? I think imagination is a very important word here. Mm. The biggest difference is that we simply don't have as much information about these early periods. Mm. We don't have diaries, we don't have many letters, or if we do, they're very formal letters, official letters. We just don't have the kind of material that you would have, certainly for the 19th century and, of course, modern history. So that means we have to use our imagination to put things together. It also means we have to use visual art and archaeology a great deal. And we need to grasp that we're dealing with a very long span of time, which can uh, telescope perhaps for us, but was uh, many human lifetimes. Well, it was, and furthermore, for some of that long period of time, we have less information than for, for other parts of it. For example, in early Christianity, we really don't have very much information about the spread of early Christianity or Christians themselves outside the New Testament for the first two centuries. Now, focusing in on the period uh, from the third century, why in a nutshell do you think the uh, Roman authorities uh, persecuted Christians, uh, at least uh, intermittently during that period? I think we we've changed our views of this period. I think a generation or so ago, scholars were rather sceptical about pagan religion and didn't take it very seriously because it wasn't Christianity. But now we're much more conscious of religious developments. So one can now see the third century emperors within a rather um, lively religious context. And they were concerned about worship of the gods. And they really couldn't deal with any groups of people like Christians who refused to go along and make the gestures they wanted them to do. I think they were in a dilemma. They didn't really know what to do. So they did have a sense of a positive commitment on a religious level to paganism, or do you think it was more political? I think they had more of a religious motivation than has been allowed for before. And one can certainly see this in the third century when Diocletian, for example, is trying to impose pagan state religion more, if more forcefully than it had been before. Uh, in the interests of the future of the empire, I think, I think they really did believe that unity and religious unity was important for the future of the empire. And then we come to Constantine. What do you make of his uh, conversion? It seems to me it was a very different kind of conversion from, say, the conversion of St Paul on the road to Damascus. It certainly was, yes. But there again, I would see it in terms of putting Constantine into a background, and the context he came from was of a group of similar 
ambitious dynasts, perhaps we call them, who were all competing for imperial power. And several of them were experimenting or were attracted with other kinds of religious practices. Now, he was not the only one of his rivals who was interested in Christianity. And that's sometimes forgotten. Even Maxentius and Licinius, whom he defeated in order to gain supreme power for himself, had been flirting with Christianity. So around Constantine, there was quite a lot of knowledge of Christianity. So he didn't suddenly make a move out of the blue. He can be explained in that context. Do you think it had elements of personal spiritual conviction or experience behind it, or was it primarily political? Well, we can't really answer this question in the long run because Constantine doesn't tell us how he felt inside. However, he does tell us in some of his letters, in some of his pronouncements, uh, in a very interesting speech that he wrote, which is still extant, about Christianity. He shows a very high level of commitment to Christianity right from the moment when he won the famous Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. So, while I can't say what went on in the heart of Constantine, I do personally believe that he was very committed to Christianity from that moment on, and he never deviated from it. He also says, and I don't see why we shouldn't believe him, that he had a, a duty laid upon him by God, and that duty was to bring about the right religion in the empire, and he thought that the empire would suffer if he didn't do it. And he says that in a letter which he wrote in the couple of months after his victory in 312. And to me, that's very striking. But what do you make of the way that he delayed baptism until right at the end of his life? Well, I think too much is made of that in most of the, uh, the books. It was very common at this stage for Christians to be baptised only after a very long preparation, a long and arduous preparation, Infant baptism was not yet established as the norm. Constantine took his baptism extremely seriously. And it's clear that once he had been baptised, we are told that he put off imperial clothes, only wore white, and the object of delaying it as long as possible was to make sure that when you died and went to heaven, you would be as pure and sinless as you could be. So I think that this was understandable given the practice of the time. And it fits in with what we know about the seriousness and the elaboration of baptismal rites in the early church. And how rapidly do you think that Constantine's uh, conversion and commitment to Christianity was uh, reflected at the grassroots in the empire? And what variations of, uh, of reception of Christianity do you think we encounter? Every emperor after Constantine except one was Christian. That's quite remarkable in itself. The church under Constantine had a very good organisation of bishops, so what we see in the next generation or so is a very rapid development of structure in the church. It's more difficult to see how far down, as it were, in the population that reached, especially in rural areas. And there is quite a lot of evidence that paganism and other beliefs continued for several centuries. But that doesn't surprise me, because we are talking about a very long process. So mostly we don't know directly about the, the rural lower classes or even the urban lower classes, but what we can say, gradually the structure of the church, the power of bishops, the, the effectiveness of their teaching grew very rapidly after Constantine. 
And I'm struck looking at the anti-pagan legislation from this period that on the one hand one can see a determination to try and impose Christianity. On the other hand, the fact that this legislation is needed is very much uh, evidence that paganism is still very much alive, even in quite influential circles. What you have to remember, of course, is that Constantine never attempted to wipe out paganism. Mm. After all, Christians couldn't possibly have been more than, some people would say 10%, I would say a much lower proportion of the entire population. And so emperors after Constantine proceeded more by encouraging Christianity and giving imperial support to bishops and churches and so on than they did by attacking pagans. By the end of the 4th century, they feel on slightly stronger ground and they are able, and we have a more fanatical emperor in Theodosius I, who is prepared to bring in legislation against pagans and also against heretics among Christians. But I don't believe it worked just like that. I think it took a long time to take effect. And there again, you have to ask, how was it enforced? What do you make of one exception? Julian, the one Roman emperor who wasn't a Christian. Julian is a very, very fascinating figure. He was, of course, brought up a Christian. He was from the family of Constantine, although his father had suffered in the purges that had happened after Constantine died. Julian was left with his brother in a very isolated way, and um, I think it, it was natural that he looked for something different. And he was allowed, rather strangely, to go to Athens for his education, where, of course, he met with teachers who were pagan, Neoplatonist philosophers, and not surprisingly, given the isolation of his upbringing, he, uh, he fell for it. And so he tried to reverse the situation in a rather curious way, but as we know, he didn't have very long, and um, who knows what would have happened if he'd had a longer reign. And this is a rather different kind of more philosophical paganism from the uh, popular cults, which we presume would have been very persistent uh, at a local level. Julian was an intellectual. Mm. Julian became extremely enthusiastic about all kinds of obscure kinds of paganism, and he revived some, for example, bathing in the blood of an ox, which certainly didn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he was regarded by many people as really quite eccentric. And he even managed to alienate the upper-class population of Antioch, which, among whom there were many educated pagans. So if he couldn't get them on his side, he wasn't going to succeed more widely. So where do the Jews fit into this picture of religious diversity? <laughs> if we're talking about, say, the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, research has really moved on in relation to the position of Jews in the Roman Empire. I think now we are far, far more aware that, that Jews were very much integrated. They were spread all over the empire, especially in cities perhaps, but they were very much integrated into the city structures and they lived side by side with other people. And I think the general picture that scholars have about this now is that there was a lot of interaction between Jews and Christians and, of course, pagans. Jews were not separated out, it would seem, in perhaps quite the way that Christians separated themselves out. One of the key things that comes out of this is that Christians were commonly exhorted by their bishops not to associate with Jews, which tells me that they were doing it, that, the, that many Christians were still following Jewish practices, and bishops like John Chrysostom at the end of the 4th century were 
very strongly telling them that they must not go to synagogues, they must not associate with Jews. And so that clearly indicates that there was a lot of assimilation in practice. But how did the Roman authorities regard the Jews? The Roman authorities always treated the Jews as a, a special kind of religious group. And so in a funny kind of way, they were protected, whereas Christians were treated very differently. So Jews were never persecuted in the way that Christians were. And they were allowed to have their own laws. They were recognized as a separate group. And this went on for quite a long time. It was really the Byzantine emperors who began to be rather more hostile to Jews and tried to bring in legislation saying that all Jews must convert to Christianity, which, of course, didn't work because it was unenforceable. Why do you think that change of attitude took place? This came about when the Byzantine Empire was under threat. It came about at the time of the Arab invasions and during the iconoclast controversy in the 8th century. I think it was a kind of side effect of the tensions, the religious tensions and political tensions that were very difficult during that period. But if we move further forward into the 5th and 6th centuries, how much do you think paganism persisted into that period? I would say that paganism did persist, but certainly in minorities. There are still um, philosophical pagans in Athens until the 6th century. However, emperors are becoming more and more stronger and stronger in their attempts to impose Christianity. I don't think it was paganism that occupied their attention at this stage, really. It was deviation among Christians. It was Christian doctrinal differences, which emperors struggled and struggled to sort out in the, in the interests of imperial unity, and they all found it extremely difficult. Yes, and in this period, Christianity itself is becoming increasingly diverse, isn't it? Well, Justinian is a case in point in the 6th century. Justinian really tried extremely hard to bring the, the divergences between the East and the West because we're now seeing this, this going apart of the Eastern part of the Empire and the Western part of the Empire. He tried very hard to bring them together, but ultimately that was a failure. And so it was during that period that Syriac-speaking churches in the East and non-Chalcedonian churches developed and became very strong, and some of them survived to this day. When we're thinking about this period, would you tend to emphasise religious conflict, or uh, would you say that rather there was a good deal of positive, peaceful coexistence, whether between Christians and pagans, Christians and Jews, or diverse forms of Christians? We need to look at our evidence. Very often our, the evidence comes from a very narrow sphere of the population, mainly upper-class educated people, Christian bishops. We get an impression from that, perhaps, that there is a lot of conflict going on, and certainly there were major problems to be solved. We know much less about ordinary people. What we do know, for example, from inscriptions or from sometimes from archaeology, sometimes from visual art, does indicate that People just got on with it. I think there was much more overlap than most people nowadays suppose. And then in the early 7th century, we come to a crucial religious and political development that surely no one could have anticipated, at least not in the form that it took, the rapid rise of Islam. How do you think that affected the post-Roman world, particularly in its religious aspects? We're still trying to understand 
the rise of Islam, what was going on in Syria after the Arab conquest. The sources, again, are very difficult. The whole subject is still very, very controversial for all sorts of very good historical reasons. First of all, the impact was one of conquest. What happened? It was not of a new religion. It was that about a third of the territory of the Eastern Empire was lost in a very, very short time. And this was a huge trauma. It was only rather slowly, really, that the Romans realized that this was a new religion. So I think the impact of Islam in a religious sense was rather slow, in fact, very slow. And many scholars would argue, although this is not the classic Muslim interpretation, that Islam developed gradually through the 7th century and was not ready-made, as it were, under Muhammad when the Arab armies conquered Syria and the what we now call the Middle East. Oh, would you say that the presence of Islam uh, engenders, at least in the somewhat longer term, a sense of sharper religious conflict? That's a very difficult question to answer, yeah. I'm afraid. I think one of the, the questions we have to ask is what happened in the lands that had been conquered by the Arabs? How many Christians converted? And the answer, I think, is very large numbers. So that's one side of the question. The other side of the question is what did the, the Byzantines, we now have to call them, think about Islam or know about it? And I think the answer is there is they didn't actually know very much about it. And they were much more concerned for quite a long time with internal problems and with keeping their rather fractured empire together and expanding into the north because there were new developments in the north. So I think there's a quite a long period of, um, in a way, lack of awareness and lack of interest. And we simply don't have very much writing about Islam from the Byzantine Empire during this period. Very, very little. Our main writer from the 8th century is John of Damascus. John of Damascus didn't even live in the Byzantine Empire. He wrote his famous treatises in Palestine and in a monastery quite near to Jerusalem. And as we come to the end of a period we're discussing, what were the tensions that you think led to the uh, eventual split between Eastern and Western Christianity? You have to remember that, after all, the Roman Empire in the West, as a political structure, had ceased to exist since the end of the 5th century. Now, Justinian in the 6th century tried to recover the Western provinces with partial but only small success. So those kingdoms that grew up in the West were able to develop in a Christian way, in a very different way from the East. So we have already, long time, we have the germ of diverse development between East and West, and this is simply what happened. And so I think a lot of the issues that came up, let's say, in the 10th century and the 11th century, when we do have quarrels between Eastern and Western Christians and Latins and Byzantines and Orthodox, however you like to call them, had their roots very early in simple divergence of practice for which a theological explanation was produced at a later stage and then argued about. One example is use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist or ordinary bread as used in the Eastern churches. Professor Cameron, thank you very much. Thank you. From the Open University. 
For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.